scripture reading for today is Exodus 27, 1 through 8, and 30, 17 through 21. And in the Pew Bibles, that's on pages 85 and 90. And this is God's description uh, of the altar that he was to have built. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall make, you shall make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it on the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar and poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is being carried, when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards and it will be shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And then 30, verses 17 to 21. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may, be, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thank you, brother. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your blessing upon this time, uh, for your unction and anointing on the preacher and hearer alike. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Use it in our lives, O oh Lord, today to make us more like our Savior Jesus. It is in his holy and precious name we ask it. Amen. You know, when someone sins against you, I mean really sins against you, there's often a temptation to get even. Have you ever felt this before? Surely I'm not the only one, right? At the very least, it's tempting to withhold forgiveness, or at least until they come groveling back. Right? You, you, there's something wrong. It must be righted. We, we all know that's a terrible way to live, right? That's not God's design for how we are meant to live, that living such, in such a way just leads us to bondage, living in the past and, and bitterness, you know, rot away at our hearts. But, you know, underlying that idea is this idea that there, there should be satisfaction, that something has happened and we, and we desire satisfaction to, for it to be made up 
We understand that from a justice perspective, we've been wronged. Now we take that in some ungodly ways very quickly. You know, World War I was something of a catastrophe. We, uh, we forget because it's 100 years old now. Um, over 100 years old. 101 years ago, World War I ended. But do you know that 40 million people died in World War I? 40 million. That's a hard number even to get your, your mind around. Let me put it this way. If you took the 23 smallest states population-wise in our country and wiped out all of their inhabitants, that's 43 million people. It'd be like if you destroyed all those who lived in, you ready for this? Oklahoma, Connecticut, Utah, Iowa, Nevada, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Rhode Island, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. It's a lot of folks that died. So at the end of World War I, when the good guys and the bad guys sat down, the, the good guys, the allies, told Germany and the other central powers, y'all have got to pay. There has to be satisfaction. And they put on them a war debt. In today's dollars, over $400 billion they'd have to pay. And in an economy where there's not an economy, they knew there was no chance they could pay this. That's why it was so high. It was not to give them the opportunity to pay it. It was to say, you can't pay this, and we're going to make it even worse for you. We're looking for satisfaction. My friends, there is another satisfaction that must be met. Divine justice demands satisfaction for what we have done, and we can't pay it. There's nothing in us that would allow us or enable us to pay the debt that we owe because of our sin, both in Adam, our original sin, and also our real sins we commit every day. We deserve death, but the good news is in the gospel that God gives us life. Why? Because someone has died in our place. As we think of God's people in the wilderness, God told Moses to have built for him a house, a tabernacle, a really fancy tent, that he might live amongst his people who are also living in tents in the wilderness. Isn't that amazing? God would live in a tent with His people who are living in tents? But the problem was that they were unholy. They were sinful. They were dirty, just like you and me, with the debt of sin. How could a holy God live with an unholy people? Well, the solution was that someone or something would have to die in order for them to be able to live together, to dwell together. And so every day, day in and day out, God's people would wake up and they would look to the center of their camp where the tabernacle was and they would see the smoke rising to the heavens of the sacrifices that happened day in and day out. They could smell the meat roasting. They could hear the fat drizzling onto the fire. They could hear the bleeding of the sheep and the mooing of the bulls and the chirp of the pigeons all heading towards their death, all so that they might live. If you were to walk through the tabernacle, 
through the curtains, the very first thing you came to was the bronze altar. This was a a big piece of furniture. That's the word we've been using to describe what's in the, the temple and its courts. It was seven and a half feet square, made out of bronze, covering acacia wood. Uh, it's it's kind of hard, actually, from the text to find out exactly what's going on here, but it's uh, four and a half feet tall with four horns on the four corners. And it's slung halfway down it or on top. It's kind of hard to determine from the text. There was a grilling deck. And men, this was the grilling deck to beat all grilling decks. It was 59 and a quarter square feet. I asked somebody how many Boston butts you could put on that thing. and um, He said at least 100. Um, it wasn't just for decoration, though. It was a place of business. I don't really like long quotes from anything from the pulpit. It's hard to understand them and to keep track. But look on the back of your uh, insert. I have a quote that I want to read to you that describes what happened when you would bring a sacrifice. It's a great description And I could do no better. In a typical case, the process begins with the worshiper who brings an animal without defect to the priest. The worshiper has raised the animal himself or paid for it with his earnings. So the animal represents a sacrifice in the modern sense of the word. It costs something to the worshiper and a portion of the worshiper's own life is identified with it. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of the animal signifying his identification with it. He, the worshiper here, he then kills the animal at the entranceway into the courtyard, signifying the animal dies as a substitute for the worshiper. From that point onward, the priest takes over in performing the sacrificial actions. The intervention of the priest indicates that a specially holy person must perform the actions necessary to present the worshiper before God even after the death of the animal. The priest takes some of the blood and sprinkles it on the side of the bronze altar or on the horns of the altar, depending on the particular type of sacrifice. All these actions constitute the permanent marking of the altar as testimony to the fact that the animal has died. Now, to modern ears, this seems somewhat brutal. You know, PETA would be very upset about what we've just read. But my friends, this is God's grace and mercy. That He would dwell in the midst of His people and provide a way for His people's sin to be forgiven. Night and day, the tabernacle stood open, ready for anyone who needed to come do business with God. And the blood of the sacrifice would be thrown against the altar. And God's justice would be satisfied. But there's one very big problem. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Well, then why in the world did God tell His people to build an altar and all of these sacrifices if the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin? Well, it's because they were pointing to the true sacrifice. The one who would come to take away the sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future. The Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus. 
So let's back up here. You know, when the Allies met with the bad guys led by Germany at the end of World War I, and they told them of the details of what would become called the Versailles Treaty, they were looking for satisfaction. They were looking for blood. And they really tried to get a lot of blood from the turnip that was the German economy. Now, here's what would happen. What if the French, the Americans, the English came to this treaty and said, hey, y'all did some really bad stuff. Forty million people have died on all sides. But you know what? We're going to pay for it. We're going to pay the war reparations. You don't have to pay a dime. We forgive you. Go and sin no more. This is what happened at the cross. We are the ones who have a debt that cannot be paid. Divine justice must be satisfied. And God sent His Son, Jesus, and said, You can't pay this, but I will pay it for you. And just like the bull would bleed, so our Savior bled. And so the fat would drizzle onto the fire underneath the bronze grating. So the fiery wrath sizzled upon His Son that one might die so that we might live. And God's justice was satisfied once and for all. This is why we can read in Hebrews 10, 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But something different has happened. So we continue reading in Hebrews 10, But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, when I finish preaching, I sit down. Why? Because I'm done. Christ has sat down. Why? Because He's done. He has finished the sacrifice. No other sacrifice remains because Christ has taken away our sin. Satisfaction has been paid. Praise be to God. All right, so that's all well and good, but what does this have to do with our daily lives apart from our salvation, which is everything to do with our daily lives? How are we to live this out? What does the bronze altar tell us about how to live as Christians today? Well, you, you have to know that the New Testament still talks about sacrifice of believers, not for believers, not for our sins, but as believers, as sacrifices to God. We see this most in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the great mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul compared himself to a drink offering that's being poured out on the sacrifice for the faith of the Philippians in Philippians 2, verse 17. How does the bronze altar, the tabernacle, inform our lives today? We are called to be wholly dedicated to God, just as those sacrifices in the Old Testament were dedicated to God. When a, sacri- when a worshiper brought an animal to God, he gave it all to God. Now, he might get to eat some of it later, but it was all given over to God. And my friends, we have been bought, body, mind, soul, our actions, our thoughts, our intentions, our priorities, all those things belong to God. 
And they are now called to be on the sacrificial altar of praise and worship to our God. And yet I look at my life. And is it a living sacrifice to God? Do I really live like that? As if everything I had, mind, body, and soul, my job, my children, my marriage, my income, my wealth, my problems, these things belong to God. How are you doing? How are you doing with where you work, live, and play Are we living lives dedicated to the Lord or dedicated to ourselves? What if we asked our coworkers? What if we asked the students in the hallway? What if we asked our spouses? Who are our lives devoted to? Who do you think my life is devoted to? Myself or God? God or money? Love or self-service? I don't think I want to ask that question too much. The tabernacle's bronze altar calls us to live lives that are fully dedicated to the Lord Jesus. Where we work, and we live, and where we play, it all belongs to Him. We need to be cleansed from sin and salvation, which is shown forth at the bronze altar and at the altar of the cross. It is finished. But you know what? We still sin, don't we? Somehow Sunday mornings are really bad for that, aren't they? And the hustle and bustle of trying to get to church. The frustration about what's to come or thinking about the, the week ahead. Or maybe Monday mornings is, that, is, is what it's for you. You know, it's the case of the Mondays. You ever had a week that's made up of all Mondays? We still need to be, we still have business to do with God. Our sins have been forgiven, and yet when we sin, there is a defiling of sin that comes into our lives that we must continue to go to Jesus and ask for His forgiveness. And this is what the bronze basin points to. Between the bronze altar and the front of the tabernacle proper itself was a a bronze basin. We don't know a lot about what it looks like. Um, In fact, my good source of pictures dried up this week. Uh, and so you'll see in your bulletin insert a rather grainy picture of, uh, of what the, the basin might have looked like. We don't know its size. We only know that it was made out of very special bronze. Exodus 38.8 tells us what kind of special bronze it was. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. In the days before ready-made glass, mirrors were made out of bronze. Really nice, fine, pure bronze that were polished very, very, um, till they they really shone and you could see yourself in its reflection. And there was this group of women who ministered in some way at their tabernacle. We're not sure what they did. We have no clue what they did. They could have been greeters. They could have been, had a ministry of prayer and fasting. They could have helped the worshipers with their sacrifices. They could have done the very practical needs of uh, cleaning the, the priest's garments and, and cleaning the utensils. We don't know what they did, but whatever they did, it was important. Women's ministry has always been important, Old Testament, New, and Now. And they gave their most precious objects to the ministry of the Lord. If you're a slave in Egypt, do you think you own a really expensive mirror? 
These mirrors would have come when they plundered the Egyptians, when they asked for their, from their masters items of worth when they left, which God had commanded them to. And they'd had these things for about a year or so by the time that the tabernacle was finally constructed. And they, and they gave them up, one of their most precious possessions, so that God's tabernacle might be fully furnished. So this bronze basin, however big it was, was full of water. And the purpose of it was for the ritual cleansing of the priests and perhaps the worshipers, we're not sure, anytime they came to the altar or did something in the tabernacle. The dirt on their hands, the blood on their arms, the grime on their feet represented the stain of sin that must be washed away before they came into the presence of God. But all this points to Christ, right? Who offers a better washing. Um, you know, we had a, a smell at our house. And it, we knew it was behind the azaleas in the back of our house. And it smelled like a dead animal. There are few things that are worse than that kind of smell. Till Friday night, we were sitting at our sofa and we smelled the smell coming in underneath the door by our sofa and wreaking havoc in our living room. And so yesterday, I put Vicks up underneath my nose and got my machete and my gloves and a shovel and went trudging through the azaleas, which if you've seen my azaleas, that's quite a task. And I finally found it. It was half of a dead possum. But you know, sometimes that's what sin is like in our lives, right? We're saved. We've been forgiven. But we allow the rot of sin in our hearts. And it stinks. And it affects other people. The frustration, you end up taking it out on your family. You end up sinning against others not even meaning to. That stink must be dealt with. That's what the bronze basin refers, uh, shows us. Our need for continual cleansing. We've been forgiven. Our sins have been cleaned by the blood of Jesus. But this is the language of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and forgive us all of our sins. You know, so often we try to deal with that stink, that griminess, the dirtiness that we feel when we, have, we know we've sinned and we've got to do something about it. We've got to go and deal with it, both with Jesus and those whom we've sinned against. And yet so often we try to do it in other ways. We keep ourselves busy so we don't have to think about it. Or we turn to substances to deaden our conscience. Or might we even do good works to think we can make up for it. If I just do this, then we'll make up for that. My friends, Jesus offers cleansing. He loves you. And if you're one of His children, if you have been saved and to put your faith in Him, then why do we tarry but to run to the one fount of cleansing found in Jesus? Sometimes we have to do business with Jesus and He is, he is ready. Sometimes we try to use, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you're dealing with oil paint. And you use water, and it just doesn't work, does it? You've got to use paint thinner or gas. Jesus is the one that cleanses us, and he does it free of charge. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
what are the modern applications here? Obviously, day-to-day struggle with sin. Don't tarry. Go to him. Ask for forgiveness and receive his blessing. Um, but also their, their connections to the New Testament and to our lives. And one very practical one is baptism. Baptism is, is uh, symbolically what's going on in baptism is the cleansing of our sin. Now, nothing cleanses us from our sin except the blood of Jesus. The water of baptism points to the cleansing that we receive when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit in our salvation as Christ's blood is applied to us. And this is why uh, baptism is so important. Acts 22, verse 16, uh, Ananias tells Paul after his conversion, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The, The water of the baptism didn't cleanse Paul, but it showed forth what had happened to Paul's soul. There's one reason why we do it to infant children. To to them belongs the the covenant sign of baptism that Christ will wash away their sin when they come to Him in faith. Those who received the waters of of the bronze basin were set aside for God's purposes and ministry inside their tabernacle. They had been washed, ritually speaking. And so too, at baptism, our children have been set aside to the Lord. But we also must think of Christ's Christ's ministry to others. Do you remember a time when Christ would take up a towel and a basin and use water to wash the grimy, nasty feet of men who wore sandals in a day of, um, well, not a lot of sanitation in the streets? And when no other disciple would do it, none of the disciples would do it because it was something you could only ask for a slave to do. He would take up the basin and the towel himself and wash the feet of his disciples in service. Do we follow Christ's example of service to others? Or do we live for ourselves? How are we doing serving each other? How are we doing serving the Lord as we serve our bosses even when they're wrong? Right? Sometimes bosses are wrong. Sometimes really wrong. How do we serve those who are hard to love and do we delight in serving God and others? We've been set aside by the washing of the water of the Holy Spirit. Well, long term, the Germans were unable to pay their reparations from World War I. They were unable to offer satisfaction. The world was thrown into chaos. The German economy lost so much value. It literally took wheelbarrowfuls of money to go and buy bread. 18 billion Reichsmarks it would take to buy a loaf of bread. The world spiraled down into the Great Depression. Hitler arose. World War II was fought. And many more millions died. There was no hope in the designs of men to get satisfaction for the murder of 40 million people. Only God can work that kind of math. My friends, the the world yearns for healing. It yearns for cleansing. The world yearns for peace. But peace has been bought. And God's wrath has been satisfied. Christ offers this to you and it is free. One day he will come back and make all things right. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and for your love. We thank you for the sacrifice of our Savior, that he would cleanse us with his blood and we would be set free from the guilt and the power of sin. We yearn 
for the final day when Christ comes back and makes all things right. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.